This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Waves. When you think of the word, you may picture yourself by the ocean, hearing them crashing and lulling you into comfort. But in science, a wave is the opposite. It's a disturbance in the matrix. Waves can be a good thing. They make colors, sounds, and heat. But there are times when they can be bad, like earthquakes and the shock wave created by an explosion. Some waves are one-time instances, others are continuous. Usually, we can predict their frequency or period using mathematical equations. Others are unpredictable and cannot be defined by a truly mathematical equation. There's no better example of this than the waves of a pandemic. We all know what that first wave is like thanks to COVID-19. And I'm sure you've heard that there's another wave, a second wave, that could be far worse. That's what we're going to cover this week. We're going to explore the science behind that worrisome wave by looking at pandemics of the past and seeing if we can predict how things will look in the future. We'll also find out whether disaster is inevitable or if there's a chance we can minimize the effects. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and this is the Super Awesome Science Show. Before I get to my guest, let's talk waves. Not water or air or humans, but pandemics. There are a number of different factors involved in calculating the height or amplitude of a wave and predicting how often it might appear. A number of models have been developed for pandemics, and usually they all tend to have the same look. It's like the back of a camel. You know, two humps. Anyways, Unlike their dromedary counterparts, the first hump of a pandemic usually tends to be smaller than the second. And that second hump is what we like to call the second wave. Now, getting to these graphs is not an easy process. Just looking at the models reveals some seriously complicated math. There are a large number of variables with names such as incubation period, duration of infection, genetic mutations, and more. This is the process of epidemiological modeling, and it's something I've been involved in over the years. Researchers crunch those numbers using equations that may make your head spin and make graphs that you can actually understand. I'm sure you've seen them whenever you've searched for COVID-19 online. Now, what do we get from those graphs? Trends. They help us to see what is happening on a daily basis and can give us an indication of where we are in the curve and if we are slowing it, flattening it, or stamping out the virus altogether. Granted, these trends are great indicators to help us judge where we are within a wave and possibly when we seem to be coming out of it. But that doesn't help us to determine when or how a second wave is going to appear or how bad it will be. It's not because of math, mind you. It's because of something we all know well, but cannot be encapsulated in a graph. It's the mission accomplished syndrome. 
We tend to think that winning battles is the most important part of a struggle. But as we've learned time and time again, a battle win is not a war won. When you're in a war with a pandemic like COVID-19, we already know victory is not easy. And every time we seem to have the advantage, the virus reminds us how vulnerable we really are. I'm not here to scare you, but I do want to let you know that history has taught us the first wave may not be the worst. Almost every pandemic has seen a second wave, and in some cases it has been worse. Much, much worse. But why can't we get it right the first time? How do we prevent mission accomplished syndrome? Or is it simply inevitable? due to human nature. Our guest this week has been looking at pandemics of the past and why these second waves happen. He's Patrick Saunders Hastings, and he is an epidemiologist and risk scientist who teaches at Carleton University. He has expertise in global health, infectious disease epidemiology, and no surprise here, emergency preparedness, which includes pandemics. Take us through the history of pandemics. And what pathogens are usually associated with that pandemic potential? Right. And, and maybe I'll limit my answer to respiratory viruses. I'll be setting aside you know, things like the plague of Justinian, the Black Death, even HIV AIDS. But when we're, when we're talking about the history of epidemics and pandemics, we're really looking at a span of about 500 years. So while we believe that we have record of the first influenza outbreak uh, dating as far back as 412 BC, the first outbreak that's generally agreed to have resulted in a pandemic occurred around 1580 and uh, originated somewhere in Asia and, and spread across um, essentially North Africa to Europe. So that's that's really not that long an amount of time, but in that period, we do have several dozen pandemics to deal with. Meanwhile, the first reference to influenza, which is the dominant respiratory virus that's been causing pandemics throughout human history, uh, the first reference to that comes um, around 1650. So the history could be a, even even a little bit shorter. Now, over that period, there's a fair bit of uncertainty about when and even more so where pandemics have emerged. We tend to think of interpandemic intervals on the scale of about 10 to 50 years. Um, certainly, that, that's true with, with influenza. Um, so that's a very broad window, kind of showing the irregularity with which these, these outbreaks can occur. Now, once we're starting to think about more reliable data, and I'm, I'm using that term a little bit loosely, um, that really begins to emerge around uh, the early 1900s with the Sp 1918 Spanish flu. Now, I think a lot of people probably have heard of that. It's, it's called the greatest medical holocaust in history, and it's believed to have resulted in about 40 to 50 million deaths worldwide and may have infected as many as, as half of the global population at that time. Um, so one of the things we're hearing a lot about right now is pandemic wave behavior. That's been true through the, the major influenza pandemics of the 1900s. The Spanish flu had three distinct waves. Um, we believe it originated in China and then spread across uh, North America through the Chinese Labor Corps that was on its way to uh, Europe for World War I. And one of the real uh, unique characteristics, maybe, of, of 
1918 pandemic relative to some of the more recent ones, was just the lack of understanding of what influenza was at that time. So we, we still didn't have a clear idea of what viruses were. We thought that the pandemic was caused by a bacteria. And there was all sorts of interesting theories about what unique uh, treatments and then therapies there might be, um, which actually might ring a little bit true given uh, the, the current state of the COVID response for at least over the past few months. Um, one of my, my personal favorites for 1918 was the belief that alcohol would serve as a cure, which in one case led to a, a run on alcohol stores in a sheriff's office uh, in the American South. Um, so moving on from 1918, we, we have a few other clear and, and well-known pandemics through the 1900s. There's the 1957 Asian flu, um, which uh, which was certainly more mild and resulted in somewhere on the scale of about a million deaths. And about 10 years after that, in 1968, there was the, uh, the Hong Kong flu, which uh, resulted from a, a reassortment event of the, uh, the Asian flu. That one was, was even more mild. And then I think in, in much more recent memory, we've had a few pandemic scares. So things like SARS, MERS, um, H5N1. The only um, 21st century pandemic to have truly emerged and established itself um, prior to COVID-19 was the 2009 H1N1 swine flu, which again was, was fairly mild, but is believed to have resulted in somewhere between 150 and almost 600,000 deaths. How similar are those pandemics to what we're experiencing right now with COVID-19? Yeah, it's a good question. And I mean, I think there there is a lot that's unique about COVID-19. And it, it really is a very severe pandemic in that it has a, a high transmissibility profile and a relatively severe um, clinical manifestation. So one of the sort of parameters we use to define transmissibility is the basic reproductive rate, uh, which is the average number of new infections that your typical infectious case would create. With COVID-19, that's somewhere between 2 and 2.5, we believe. Now, that's the highest value for a pandemic since the 1918 Spanish flu. Now, while mortality rates are much lower than um, than SARS or MERS or, or the Spanish flu have been, uh, they're still believed to be about 10 times higher than your typical seasonal influenza. So I think that combination um, led to a fair bit of reasonable worry and reasonable concern. Within that, and as an extension of that, I think we did have um, certain responses, both, uh, let's say, from, from health authorities and from the public that were maybe less appropriate and less useful. And I think that's where we're getting into some issues with the public health and, and risk uh, communication and messaging, where either there's a lack of trust or legitimacy or consistency in the messaging that people are getting. I always like to say that the science doesn't change, people change. And not just with COVID-19, but also pandemics of the past. In your research, how much does human nature play into the calculations of how bad things are going to get, not just in the first wave, but also the second and subsequent waves? Significantly. Significantly. And, and there's two sides to that. I, um, one, I think, is the 
you know, potential for a protective effect of human nature. And the other, and I think where where you're headed here a little bit, is, is the potential for damage or, or problematic behavior. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to start on the potential that human behavior has to limit uh, transmission. We know that with all pandemics, there tends to be a window where pharmaceutical interventions are not available. Now, that window tends to be shorter with influenza strains because we have an influenza vaccine sort of prototype or structure that's already in place. And we didn't and don't have that for coronaviruses. So the, the, um, the lag is expected to be longer. And what that means is that human behavior plays a real driving role in determining um, what sorts of transmission opportunities and events are likely to occur. So we're hearing all sorts of things about hand hygiene and face mask use and social or physical distancing, as, as we may call it now. And that really is critical to limiting the spread of infection and preserving the capacity of the uh, healthcare and public health system to respond to an outbreak. Now, on the flip side of that, and the, the sort of human nature component, we do have that, that very natural urge to be social creatures, and, and I think that can limit adherence to those guidelines. But the other aspect of that is this view, whether right or wrong, that pandemics represent a, a loss of control, right? And they're, they're almost in that same vein as, as terrorism events, where there is an external and poorly understood threat um, that creates, let's say, more panic and, and sometimes um, uh, responses that are not informed by practice. Now, what I would say for both terrorism events and pandemics is that historically speaking, we tend not to see this, let's say, mass fear or inappropriate response or panic across pandemics. And I think that's true of COVID-19 as well. I would view the larger issue as, let's say, missed opportunities to engage in that more protective behavior. Do you believe that some of the problems associated with the inability to control a pandemic wave relate to the struggle between an individual's self-preservation and the overall societal good? That's that's an interesting way of framing it. Um, I, I tend to think of it more as there, there is sometimes an unwillingness to inconvenience oneself for the protection of society. So we know that wearing face masks can be uncomfortable and cumbersome. And we know that people don't want to wash their hands for 20 seconds each time they, they come back in the house uh, as examples. And so I think it's very easy to say, I am not in the risk profile. If I get it, I get it. And, and you know so be it. And I think what that ignores is that you you may be in close proximity, whether unknown or, or intentionally, with people who are within that vulnerability profile, you know, whether it's an elderly parent or grandparent or a coworker or someone that you cross on the street. And so I think that sort of mental calculus can be very difficult. Accepting that sort of cost or inconvenience for the potential protective effect um, to someone else um, intuitively makes sense. We, we are seeing fairly strong adherence in much of Canada to those measures. But I think where we are seeing reluctance or resistance to those uh, recommendations, it's really more around the inconvenience and cost than it is around balancing personal protection against community protection. 
We know enough from history to understand how pandemic waves come about, and how the math that I talked about earlier, the rest comes down to us. So then we must ask, can we avoid that wave altogether? And the answer, as with any preventable infection, is yes. And this applies even if a second wave has already been declared. After all, we don't always have to suffer. We can fight back. We just need to know what to look for and what we can do alongside our researchers and healthcare officials to be sure we keep everybody safe. We all have a role in stopping a second wave. And Patrick Saunders Hastings can help us learn from the past so we don't repeat the same mistakes in the future. What factors make a second wave possible? It's an excellent question, and there's still a lot of debate and uncertainty about what causes a pandemic wave. And again, most of our knowledge comes from influenza, which is a different virus altogether. Now, previous pandemics we know have been characterized by waves of activity spread across several months. And once the level of disease activity drops, we get into that difficult communication task of balancing sort of the, the information that transmission is slowing with the possibility of another wave. And we really don't want to be premature in relaxing too much. So what I can tell you from influenza is that we think contact reductions during school closures in the summer play a, a significant role, as do mass vaccination schedules. Neither of those are very likely to apply to covid given that contact rates have already been impacted and the fact that a vaccine is currently not broadly available. We also know that respiratory viruses, including other coronaviruses, tend to favor seasonal cold weather patterns of circulation. And this is because temperature and humidity profiles can affect both virus survival and its ability to establish infection in humans. This means that there's various competing factors that can impact the seasonality and timing of a second wave, making it pretty uncertain. Um, the combination of increasing social contact as we ease restrictions combined with colder weather as, as we get into the Canadian fall will be of concern, and I'll, and I'll be watching that closely. I want to be clear here. When we're talking about a second wave, it's a true second wave. We're not talking about a rise in cases after the reopening from a lockdown, much as we've seen this year with COVID-19. That's right. And I think what I would caution on top of your caution is that the definition of a true second wave is also kind of problematic and unclear. So you're absolutely right that you know, a few increases in cases here or there, especially small ones, um, can be considered in context. With that said, I think notable and sustained increases in cases as well as hospitalizations and deaths will be of significant concern. Now, we look at that in the context of test positivity and the number of, or I should say, the proportion of tests that come back positive, which we want to be as low as possible, as well as the number of tests per death, which we want to be um, as high as possible. But you're absolutely right that what we really need to avoid is that exponential increase in cases, which can quickly overwhelm our healthcare and public health capacity to respond. And that's really the key, right? We want to be sure we have a stable and available healthcare system. We don't want it to be overburdened with the first or second wave, or as we've seen with the cause of the 2009 pandemic, H1N1, the 11th wave, which we're currently seeing. 
That's absolutely right. Yeah. And so we we didn't see these sorts of widespread shortages in in our Canadian experience of COVID-19 to date. With that said, that's not to suggest it can't happen. And a key component of these non-pharmaceutical interventions that we've been discussing, like physical distancing and face mask use and hand hygiene, is to slow that transmission to an extent where our peaks aren't so problematic and don't threaten the, uh, the hospital uh, capacity to provide adequate care. Do you think the second wave could force us back into a lockdown? We've never really experienced this in modern times. I'm curious what you think may happen. The short answer there is that it's possible, and it, and it could. We want our strategies to be responsive to the risk and threat associated with COVID-19. Um, so severe spikes in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths could necessitate a return to previously implemented or new restrictions, including lockdowns. And I think that that ability to be flexible to shifting um, sort of epidemiology, transmission, and risk profiles is critical to the success of our pandemic response. And that leads me to the big question that everybody's asking. Is a vaccine going to save us all? Well, depends on what timeline you're thinking about here. And, and I think one, one of the, um, let's say, expectations that I think has been somewhat unfair to the broader scientific community is that one would be available this year. But to my mind, we're still looking at a best case scenario of broad general population distribution at some time in early to mid-2021, which from what I expect to be the timing of potential increases in cases, it would be too late to dramatically or, or substantively impact a second pandemic wave. So a vaccine isn't going to be a panacea. It's not going to be the one and only thing that's going to stop future waves. I would caution against relying on a vaccine as being the one thing. That sort of hope presupposes that a safe and effective and well-accepted vaccine is quickly available. And I think taking that sort of approach puts us at real risk of being unprepared and exposed if those trials are not as promising as we hope. I guess it really comes back down to human nature and the fact that we have to get used to this virus. We can't just say it is what it is. We have to learn how to manage and mitigate outbreaks when they crop up. And I guess that's the only way we're going to be able to prepare ourselves for epidemics or even pandemic waves. Yeah, and I think you know we we are starting as again I'm I'm in Ontario and we're we're moving through our pandemic recovery plan, and so we start to hear uh, folks talk about the return to normal. And I would caution a little bit against using that term because I'm not convinced that the recovery will mean a return to the same situation and, and context and approaches that we had before this pandemic. I think that there will be lasting changes. Um, some of those many will view as positive, including uh, more flexible work arrangements, an increased adoption of, of virtual healthcare delivery. But I, I do also think that there will be this need to learn how to live with this viral infection and, and potentially others that come. So I'm personally hoping that COVID-19 represents a bit of a watershed moment in how we view, prepare, and respond to pandemic threats. We've reached the end of this episode, but not our exploration into the second wave. This season, 
we're going to take a different approach to the SAS class. We're giving you the chance to ask the experts the questions you want answered. And we're giving you more ways to get a hold of us. To ask your question about the second wave or anything else that is on your mind, tweet me at jatetro or email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. And now you can head to speakpipe.com slash sass, that's S-A-S-S, and post your question. We'll take the top three to five questions and give you the answers next week. In the meantime, for Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Patrick Saunders Hastings. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week, stay safe, and as always, make sure to show them some sass. <laughs>